Hey, good morning. What's up, guys? Thanks for letting me hang out with you all this morning. I have a confession uh, to make is that you're totally getting the JV guy here this morning. So uh, our friend who was originally supposed to sub in today um, had an illness, and so mutual friend. I, I had never met Jernigan until about a week and a half ago. And uh, grabbed some lunch. We found out that we're, uh, we're soon to be best friends. Loved hanging out. And, and I think I'm here because what I get to do in life is help train and come alongside everyday people, right? Just normal unpaid, unprofessional Christians to help them live on mission, make disciples of where they are in their world, um, and to, to see new spiritual families kind of emerge right there. And so I get to do that in life. And, and I hear a rumor that you all have been in this, this series called Who's the Minister Here? Not if, that, if that's correct. Okay, cool. Or at least just pretend like you've been paying attention. The, really, the concept is like, you all are the best ministers of the gospel in the place that God's already placed you. And so I get to just come and get to talk about the thing that I'm most passionate about this morning. And, and um, in that journey of kind of walking through that the last few years, we launched an organization that Chris mentioned is called KC Underground. Uh, that's just what we get to do. We come alongside everyday people, help train them, launch them, and sustain uh, the, the cool fruit that, that emerges. And I was a pastor at a more traditional church for about, 10, 12 years. And uh, I was always that weirdo on staff. You know, and I mean that, I think in a good way. But I was that guy who, you know, we'd always talk about the various programs and ministries that we're doing in the church and they were all really good. But I was like, but what about the people who won't come to church? Right, like what about all my friends who won't come here? So I was always that guy who was pushing the envelope and, and really annoying the head pastor all the time talking about this stuff. And, and then about seven years ago, I became even more weird because I started traveling around the world and I started uh, hearing from movement leaders in places where at one point it was like unreached people groups and then a couple years later there's hundreds of new churches or even thousands of new churches. We call that a church planting movement or disciple making movement. I'm actually curious if you've ever heard of that term to raise your hand. Have you ever heard of church planting movement or disciple making movement? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So literally think of it like this. Like there's people who don't know Jesus. There's a region or a people group or a country or whatever. And uh, missionaries start to engage that people. And then from the ground up, we start to see this indigenous church planting movement. We see multiplication of churches, planting churches, planting churches. When it gets to about four generations and about a hundred churches, usually around a thousand new believers, these are just kind of metrics that we use in the, in the missions world. We actually call that a movement. It's actually called a church planting movement. We are tracking globally, here's the good news, y'all, over 1,300 church planting movements around the world. That's like 1,300 book of Acts that are happening right now all around the world. I love to tell Americans this because we have no idea. Like so often we, we know the bad news of what's happening in some of our church worlds. I hope you are encouraged to know that there are millions of people who have come to know Jesus in the last you know, decade, two decades, three decades in what, these, what we call these movements. And so I'm like beginning to hang out in Africa and I'm beginning to hang out with leaders in India and uh, South America, or Central America area, just like places where the gospel is really expanding and I'm learning from them. And I'm telling you, you can only do that for so long before you are just totally messed up. And it's just different than a lot of the ways that I'd done church before that. I remember one time I was in Africa 
and I was hanging out with a bunch of movement leaders from all around the world. We were gathering in, in Nairobi. And there was a leader from Ethiopia, I believe. And, uh, and he was speaking, and, and someone was kind of in my ear, kind of telling me his backstory. And they had seen hundreds of new kind of house church expressions pop up in his network. He was kind of the head of this network. And then I find out that he's illiterate. Like the dude can't read, he can't write, but he, is, he has been the primary catalyst for thousands of people to come to know Jesus. Like that'll mess you up as an American pastor, right? Like, cause we often, we buy into this kind of idea that the varsity ministers are the ones who, who get paid, right? Or who are the ones who are on a stage or the ones who maybe are more educated than other people. And then you meet a guy from Africa who's helping catalyze all these amazing things and it just starts to flip your mind a little bit. In, in the most beautiful way, by the way. Just this beautiful way of seeing kind of the kingdom. Because you know what he could do? He could hear from God. He could obey his word. And he could help facilitate others doing the same thing. There's just the simplicity of the gospel movement that really blew my mind. And so there's two things that I've really learned over the years from those types of trips and those types of conversations. So number one, there is no such thing as Holy Spirit Junior. Can I get an amen? There's no such thing as Holy Spirit Junior. So the same God who dwells in movement leaders around the world who are seeing incredible fruits, the same God who dwells in me and the same God who dwells in all of you. So that's number one. Number two, movements and new disciple making travel on the back of ordinary people, not professionals, not the highly educated. It's not dependent upon some extreme gift, right? It's on the backs of ordinary people and their willingness to join Jesus on mission in the places in which he's already placed you in. So I'm totally messed up, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going around the world, I'm hearing these things. And so I'm coming back to our church and, and our church was at a place, we had a lot of people there who'd been there for a long time who were content and, and they were awesome, amazing people, but they weren't necessarily all that excited about taking the word to their neighborhoods and taking the good news to their friends. And so I started just asking God a desperate question. I'm like, God, where are you at work in Kansas City? Like, I wanna see this type of fruit. I wanna see disciples making disciples. I wanna see people who don't know Jesus. I wanna see unchurched people and their friends and their networks come to Jesus. So I just started asking that really dangerous prayer, God, where are you up to? Like, where and what are you doing? And how can I join you? Long story short, I started hanging out in jail. <laughs> I started hanging out with, a, there's a local jail ministry and the guy who leads it is a weirdo also. And I came up, like one day we were hanging out and I was like, hey man, what if instead of like me as the pastor coming in and bringing all these programs, what if instead we find the people whose God's already placed in jail, like who live there? which is a nice way of saying, been arrested, right? And they're in jail. And what if, what if they're actually the best leaders and best disciple makers are actually in jail right now? And so I started, we started going in and we had this vision of seeing these simple um, discipling groups called Discovery Bible Studies pop up in all these pods. And uh, man, for the next two years, it felt like I was in the book of Acts. We're hearing story after story, like crazy miracles of people having a dream about Jesus and the next day they're facilitating a discovery Bible study. 
people baptizing people, people uh, putting these Bible study sheets underneath different, you know, cells, uh, drug dealers never prayed before in their life or suddenly praying with a group of, you know, 50 other inmates and leading discovery Bible studies. I mean, just create like signs and wonders, crazy stories that are happening in jail. And I used to make the, the joke that if you want to hear about Jesus in Johnson County, get arrested uh, because God's doing some crazy cool stuff there. It was, it was probably bad advice, um, but I did say that a lot. And so the same spiritual truth was again reinforced by the time that I was hanging out in jail is that ordinary people, God is doing amazing things in the ordinary everyday places. By the way, from that stuff that was happening in jail, it started to spill out. And now we have like, um, I think it's seven, what we call micro churches uh, of people have all come out of jail and addiction communities. I'm talking like hundreds of people in these micro churches that have incredible testimonies. And it was an overflow of some of the stories that I was just saying. So here's my goal for the next 20 minutes or so is that I'd love in any way that I can to help you all uh, see in some of the same ways that I've got to see in Africa and then again in jail and then again maybe dozens of other times that we're seeing in Kansas City right now that God is at work in your everyday place, right? And that, that you are the most qualified person to reach those people. That's my goal. Uh, at least a little bit of a glimpse of that, that, that God would enlighten us a little bit in that world. And then um, I'm mostly gonna do that just by looking at one story in scripture, one of my favorite Jesus stories. And then as we're reading it, I wanna be like, okay, how did Jesus do it? Like, what was the, the way of Jesus when it comes to mission and disciple making? So I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna turn to Mark chapter five. So God, thank you so much for just the opportunity to, to gather as your family. God, to, to hear your word, to, to hear good news, God, that, that your kingdom is coming. God, that your kingdom is, is here and you're doing, Lord, amazing things in our time. So God, I just pray that every one of us here, as we, as we dream and as we think and as we pray and we understand, God, that you have placed us in certain areas in life and that we are like, we're ambassadors, like we are ministers of reconciliation right in those places. God, I just pray right now you would encourage us that you meet us here and that you would just, yeah, you'd speak to us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're gonna go to a trippy story in Mark chapter five. And I was just gonna retell most of it, but then I found out Jernigan preaches for like 45 minutes, so I thought I had time. Um, so I'm gonna read, sorry, sorry if that's bad news, if you were hoping to get out of here. <clears throat> no, I'll be fast. I also heard a great rumor that the music starts to play and Jernigan still is up here for like 15 minutes. That's awesome. That makes me so happy. All right, I'm gonna read Mark 5, uh, 1 through 17, and then pause, and then we'll look at the end of the story. But okay, Mark 5, they, as in Jesus and his disciples, they just went across the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Um, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the, uh, where am I at? This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. 
He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank of the lake and, and, the lake and were drowned. These tending the pigs ran off and reported this in town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Okay, so... Pretty trippy stuff so far. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of details, mostly because it's, uh, I don't know if it would, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Half the time, this is a trippy story. But just to summarize, and then it kind of, uh, the conclusion is really significant here, is that Jesus and his disciples are traveling across the Sea of Galilee, and they come across this just whacked out, demon-possessed dude who just like spends time in the tombs cutting himself and screaming out, right? This is the guy that we're talking about. Runs up to Jesus, asks him, what does he want? And Jesus, casting out the demon, you know, and they go into a herd of pigs. They run into the lake. They die. It freaks people out. They ask him to leave. And then this happens. This is the main verse that I want to chill in today. This is, this is uh, Mark 5, 18 through 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. But he said, go home to your family and tell him how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. I love this weird story because it gives us a glimpse into, I think, the way that Jesus approaches mission. In particular, you zoom in in the, the Decapolis. The Decapolis, where this guy was from, literally means the 10 cities. Historically, we know that at this time, the Decapolis was the Gentile region of Palestine. So these 10 cities were the non-Jewish areas in the New Testament where Jesus ministered. And I love this story because it's the only thing that happened in this region, right? So they're across the sea. They come all the way over here. They meet this guy. All this crazy stuff happens. And then they just go back, right? Like this is the only thing that happens in this area. And it's almost as if the whole purpose of Jesus to come here was to find this dude. Like think about that. Like why? The entire reason they came to this area was to find this guy which I think actually gives us a glimpse into the Jesus strategy of mission, particularly the Jesus strategy of mission among a kind of Gentile-based missionary environment, right? He doesn't pluck this guy out of his relational network, have him follow him around like he did with all the other disciples. Instead, he says, go back. He explicitly says, go back to your family, go back to your people and tell them what I've done for you. 
Guys, this is different than what Jesus usually does among the Jewish people. You know what he usually does? He says, don't tell anyone. Or go to the priests and tell them what happened, right? Instead, he's in this this non-religious, this non-Jewish area, and he says, no, you're not coming with us. You're going back to your people, and you're telling them the good news. So you know what this means? I think I can back this up scripturally. I've tried to do my homework. Is that this whacked out crazy as of five minutes ago, demon-possessed guy is the first missionary to the Gentiles in the New Testament. Think about that. He'd never been to church. He probably couldn't tell you anything about the Torah. He probably couldn't recite the Ten Commandments. But he was the one who Jesus chose to be the mouthpiece to the Decapolis, to his own people. Guys, that's awesome, right? Like that is so, that is so encouraging. If that doesn't encourage you to realize that you are qualified and called to be a mouthpiece and a disciple maker of your friends and your neighbors, then I don't know what will, right? It's so encouraging. Like not only does Jesus, when he's choosing his disciples, choose the simple people, right? He chooses the, you know, the fishermen or even the, the tax collectors, right? No, it's, he goes once, he like doubles down. And for the first missionary, he chooses the town crazy guy, right? As a few minutes ago was so crazy and so messed up. He chooses that person to be the first missionary to the Gentiles. So that is, that is one huge takeaway. A second huge takeaway is we look at just the way that Jesus ministers, particularly in the, the non-church, un, irreligious, unreligious type of circles, uh, is that the concept that Jesus uses insiders to reach their own people. Like that's actually one of the most significant lessons that I have learned as I study the, the book of Acts, as I study movements of God throughout history, as we study church planting movements that are happening now throughout the world, is that, man, that God uses untrained, non-professional insiders. They're almost always more effective than trained professional outsiders. Think about that. An untrained insider is almost always more effective than a trained outsider. I was talking to my, my friend Chris a year or two ago, and Chris came out of just a, a life of homelessness, actually. He had spent a couple years, he lived mostly under a bridge, he lived in, in homeless communities, and, and he had a pretty powerful encounter with Jesus. And, uh, and, and it's a long story, it was this cool redemption and rescue plan in his life. And, uh, and now he spends most of his time ministering to and planting the gospel within homeless communities. And I remember one time just asking him, I was like, Chris, why do you feel so called to homeless people? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, because I remember the smell. And he didn't mean the smell as like, an, you know, like someone who, you know, as an outsider smells people who are, you know, homeless. And you, they smell. He, just, he remembers the smell of the, the culture, the context, the reality, right? He just remembers, he remembers the breeze under the bridge that he lived in, right? It's just, it's who he is. He's an insider. Like if I ministered to homeless people, which I have a lot of times in my life, that's awesome. There's amazing things that can happen, but there's always a a level of translating that happens. But not with Chris. Like he gets it. He belongs. Like he's one of them. Jesus says, go back to your people. Tell them what you have done. That's like, that's deep, deep in who Chris is. 
as he reaches the homeless community. So those two like significant points that I think that we take from this story is that number one, I've said it a few times, I'll say it again, that Jesus uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And number two, an insider is almost always more effective than an outsider. So if we like actually wrap our minds around the craziness that is that, is that truth, like if we actually grasp it, it completely flips the way in which we operate in American Christianity, right? Like we've simply operated from this um, kind of a non-mission-focused posture. Like historically, we're sort of a we're sort of a Christian nation, and and we put on like if we if we put on good church services, people might come. You know, that, that's that's stuff that I think really does work in certain contexts, particularly in a like a Jerusalem-like a context. But as we think about the Decapolis. Right? Like, we kind of, I can kind of relate to the Decapolis. Most of my friends and family, or at least my friends in the networks, they don't, they're not churched. A lot of, most of them are two generations removed from church. Like, I think of, like, my high school. So I went to high school, Blue Valley School District, South Kansas City, and I, like, I remember hearing all these statistics about how many Christians there were in our nation, and right, it's like 90 something percent of people identify as a Christian. And, you know, this is probably 2001. And I remember thinking like, what? Like, I, I'm in a class of 500. I think I know 12 other Christians. Like legitimately, like I'm so confused. Okay, like zoom up, you know, zoom ahead a bunch of years in my suburban neighborhood. And there's like 12, 13 houses on our block. And only one other family is like a church family. And then we have all these other friends that are a part of our network of you know, elementary school families and things like that. And, you know, I think one of the seven, I was counting yesterday, is like a church family. Like, it's just the reality. It's just all that I've really ever known. And I, I imagine, especially if you're probably under 40 in this context, I bet you you have a similar story, right? Like, it's just, we understand missional context in a, in a, in a sense because it's all I've ever known. It's like, I don't feel like I really am in a Christian nation in that sense, like, I really resonate with the way of Jesus. So I just think we're at a point in American church history where we can't afford to think about ministry and mission and disciple-making in terms of professionals, right? Or even just the strategy of inviting people to hear the professionals. Like, there is something deeper that I think God is calling us to, a strategy that looks probably a little bit more like Jesus in the Decapolis than necessarily in Jerusalem. Which, by the way, is why I think that Jernigan and the leadership here uh, is doing this series in the first place. This whole series that's called Who's, Who's the Minister Here? Like, man, I, I, mean, I really believe that, like, as I was talking with Jernigan, like, he just desperately wanted to see, like, his people, you all, <laughs> to truly understand the identity as a minister, right? The, I, your identity as a disciple maker in your everyday places. Because here's the crux of it all. You all, and I mean this in the most holy, endearing, honoring way possible, are ordinary people. Like, that sounds like a negative word. I mean it in, like, such a big compliment, right? You are, you are ordinary, really what I mean by that is unpaid, non-professional Christians. 
And and being ordinary, unpaid, non-professional Christians, you are not only allowed to minister to people and make disciples of people outside the walls of this church, but you are actually called and ordained by Jesus as his primary strategy to reach those who don't yet know him. Can I get an amen? His primary strategy, not a secondary one. It is primary strategy to reach people who don't yet know him is you all, everyday followers of Jesus in everyday spaces. I was talking to a friend of ours who's part of our Casey Underground Network you know, a few months ago, and, uh, and she is friends with all these uh, other young moms in the neighborhood. And she hangs out, she's building relationships, she's seeking to you know, live on mission and be purposeful in the neighborhood. And one day she tells me, she's like, I had this incredible epiphany. As I'm hanging out with all these unchurched women, she's like, if, if I don't do this, who will? And it was beautiful because it wasn't like the shame thing, like Jesus, like shame, if you don't do this, you don't, you know, whatever. It was just this beautiful epiphany of like, these people are not gonna come to church and I get to be, hang out with them. Like this is like, if I don't do this, who is? And it sounds simple, but that is a deep, profound epiphany in her life. So I remember saying to her, uh, and probably not quite as succinct or eloquently as I'm trying to tell you all now is that I look at her and say, you are called and ordained by Jesus to be the primary disciple maker in your relational network. I'm gonna say it one more time. You are called and ordained by Jesus to be the primary disciple maker in your relational network. That's awesome. Like that's a calling, that's deep, that's, that's amazing. And what I get to do in life is just come alongside that vision and then help train people, help coach people. And coaching, what I love about coaching is that it's not information driven. It's not just, hey, know all these facts and then boom, you're a missionary in your neighborhood. It's really more uh, practice-based. So what I wanna do for the next few minutes is just kind of go over five super practical things to help you as people who are saying, I really wanna go, I wanna do this, I wanna join God in the everyday places. And so yeah, let's, let's look at that. Let's look at five things. We're gonna end with these five things. Number one, Start with the people you have a reason to be around. Start with the the people that you have a reason to be around. Like I can coach tons of different people and all this. And at some point, it's all information until you get down to who the actual people are that God's called us to. And then sometimes we get a little too complicated and I'm like, okay, who do you hang out with already? Okay, that's probably where. That's probably the people that God has sent you to is, is that group. We actually do this really simple uh, thing called a relational map. And I, I challenge you guys to like try this at home. Like you take a little notes and try this out. It's really, really easy. Is that you just, you know, get a piece of paper, draw three or four circles and label those circles as like the places or the networks that, of the people that you get to hang out with. So maybe it's uh, my neighborhood or maybe it's my gym or maybe it's my friends from high school, or whatever it is, right? Just kind of like label these four kind of spheres and then just list as many names that you can think of who belong in that sphere. We do that simple exercise all the time with people and it's amazing how often God just highlights it. It's like, oh, God put me here for a reason. Like a a profound but simple epiphany that's like, oh man, maybe I am called to be a disciple maker in that network. It's beautiful. Um, and that language we use a lot, or you may have heard, is, is we want to be people who are missionaries where we live, learn, work, and play. If you've ever heard that, live, learn, work, play. Live is, you know, 
where do you live? Is it your neighborhood? Is it your dorm? You know, is it apartment complex? Uh, learn if you're in school. Work where you work and play to some of the places that you hang out. Like these general spheres of life can help you identify the place that God has put you in. You are probably gonna be the most effective disciple maker in the places that you have a reason to exist in. That's number one. Number two, pray as if you're joining God in his work and not the other way around. (laughs) Because you are, by the way. Like God has a, a, a greater desire the father has a greater desire to see his, his children reconciled to him than we do. And so if we pray with that knowledge, it takes a lot of the burden off of our shoulders that we have to do something extraordinary, right? We get to pray in faith that God is already on the move in this network. And we say, okay, it's kind of like what I did when I was in, and went to jail. It's like, all right, God, where are you at work? How can I join you? Pray over these friends, God, where are you at work? How can I join you? You get to to pray with a more listening posture. If you know that God is going before you, then it's like he gives you strategy. He gives you space for conversation. He gives you um, intentional things to pray for. And then what happens, I I don't know if you guys have ever hung out with those people who pray differently you know, you know what I'm talking about? Usually, I, like, if I travel around the world, I'm with, like, missionaries or church leaders around the world, and they pray with almost a different sort of authority. You know what I'm talking about? It's like if you really need prayer in your life, who are the people you're calling? Like, those people, right? They just pray with this certain level of authority. I'm telling you, missionaries pray with a different way. Like, we get to understand our identity as you know, sons and daughters of the living God. And, and in that, we've been given authority in the kingdom to pray in faith, right? And to not just meekly ask for things, but to declare in the name of Jesus truths. Like this is, it's a wild thing to see in the New Testament, right? And so as, as missionaries, and you know that God is going before you and you know the people that God has called you to, you get to pray in a different authoritative listening posture. So I encourage you guys to do that. Pray as if you're joining God in his ministry and not the other way around. Number three, be intentional in creating space for relationship building. Be intentional in creating space for relationship building. So very simply, how and where can you actually rub shoulders with people and have real conversations? In America, we just sometimes, we're so bad at that naturally, is that being intentional in creating space to actually have real conversations. It won't happen organically most of the time. It has to happen intentionally. So for instance, a handful of years ago, we just decided we really felt called to our neighborhood at that time. And uh, it was hard to actually have real conversations. So we just decided we're gonna stick a fire pit in our front yard. And uh, every Friday, we called it uh, Friday night, first Friday fire fire pit night. It, was, it had like four Fs. It was yeah, really creative. Yeah, I used to be a youth pastor. And, uh, and so we put this, this fire pit out and we just started like having real conversations. It was amazing. It was like, that was my missionary strategy is to begin to have real conversations around the fire pit. My friend Brian, same thing he does around college football. He opens up his garage. They have a TV outside. They watch college football all day. And it led to discovery Bible studies and microchurch in their neighborhood from relationships that he started creating with some of the men in the neighborhood. Um, I've got some other friends who uh, all of, like his kids are all great athletes and they play all these sports and, you know, they're not able to go to church and they're always feeling guilty. And then one day they realize all of their friends around them, 
None of them go to church, but they spend every weekend together. All right, so they just started hanging out intentionally and they started studying the word together. And now that group of people, even when they're traveling for like traveling baseball teams, gather together as the church every single weekend. That's incredible things. So I looked at what it means to, to plant the gospel in an area and just actually creating space to have real relationships. Okay, so that was number three. Number four, become the best question asker you can possibly think of. Become the best question asker that you know. So guys, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a missionary. Like that's actually probably professionally, I think that's what I would probably just simply call myself is that I'm a, I'm a missionary. And I don't know how American Christianity started equating evangelism with elevator pitches. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like we, when every time we train evangelism, it's usually we train people how to move someone who doesn't yet believe in Jesus from unbelief to belief in a single conversation. That is terrifying. Like I'm a professional missionary. I'm like, are you serious? Like that's our strategy. And that's cool. Sometimes God uses that. And I'm not even speaking against that. I'm just saying that is terrifying. That is like, I don't know how to do that. I know that God shows up in powerful ways, but man, like I look at evangelism in scripture and it's like way bigger and holistic than that. We get to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so I wanna give you all permission. I don't know if like, if you're like most people that I get to hang out with, most Christians who I get to help think through in this stuff. And I say, hey, what words or feelings come to mind when I say the word evangelism? Nine out of 10 people, it's negative. Isn't that crazy? And I'll ask them about like mental pictures and they'll, you know, anything from televangelists to, you know, confrontational people on the corner or whatever, right? And it's almost always negative. I want to give you guys permission to rethink evangelism in terms of the New Testament and get excited about it. Particularly, I want you to become a question asker, not a truth declarer. If you become a great, great question asker, you're gonna see like the kingdom of God breakthrough in conversations like you'd never have before. Did you know that Jesus, let me get my stat right, asked 307 questions in the gospels? 307, I have a document with every single one of them. 307 questions. Jesus was a master at asking questions. He would ask questions when it didn't make sense. He would ask questions when people come to him and say like, Jesus, like what must I do to be saved? He actually said, they actually said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Like in that just teeing it up for per, like American evangelism, we'd be like, this is what you do. Here's, here it is. You know, what Je- you know what Jesus said? Why do you call me good? I love that. That's awesome, right? Like that strategy is just like he immediately went to the heart. He asked a question that was deeper, made the person look deeper into why he was even asking the question. Jesus was a master question asker. And we have found that the best evangelism comes from people who ask good questions. Kingdom breakthrough, kingdom revelation comes in good question asking. So that's why I challenge you guys, become a great question asker. Um, And this actually leads to something pretty practical that I'm not gonna go too in deep uh, with, but Jernigan said I could at least talk about it a little bit, is uh, number five, gather spiritually interested people right where they're at. Gather spiritually interested people right where they're at. So as we track all these um, disciple-making movements, church planning movements around the world, we have found something that is consistent in every movement. 
is that the uh, discipleship strategy and church planting strategy is always a discovery-based and obedience-based model of discipleship. It's a facilitation question-asking and then obedience response way of making disciples. So what I mean by that is, uh, and I'm gonna give a case study that's happening in my life as we speak. This wasn't in my notes, so hopefully none of them are watching (laughs) right now. Uh, But a group of friends that my wife and I feel very, very called to. Friends of our kids who play sports. I mentioned them before. None of them go to church. And we just love these people. They're becoming our, our good friends. And we started a softball league so that we can hang out with them more. That was our missional strategy, by the way, with this group, is that we started a softball. My, my wife's in the right field talking about Jesus with somebody. I mean, she made a horrible softball player, but great missionary. And get to just talk about Jesus as, the, as a fly ball goes right over their head. Um, and so that's, that was the main part of our strategy. And so like God is, is like, have, like these cool conversations are happening in everyday time. And, and so we just start inviting. And then at that point, we said, well, hey, what if we just gather together as friends and we just discovered what the Bible had to say and said, like, how can we live differently because of it? That was the invitation. So starting next week, three or four of those families, and I, I would imagine it's gonna grow because we're all, we do everything together nowadays, are gathering together in our house to read a Jesus story and say, what does this say about God? What does this say about people? How can we live differently? And then who are we gonna share it with? And it's just this like really, really simple way to begin to make disciples from the ground up. We call it discovery Bible study. Um, And so we just learned this from global movements. Uh, There is a resource. I just wanna give you guys this resource. You can write it down. um, And just to have in the back of your mind that say, God is doing something in you right now and you're thinking through a specific group of people and you wanna know how to begin to gather them where they're at, go to uh, dbsgroups.com. That's just one of, you can, you can find resources on Discovery Bible Study, tons of places. That's a resource that we created, dbsgroups.com. It has Discovery Bible Study questions. It has scripture lists to start with. And I'm telling you, it is so fun. It is so fun to see friends, people who don't yet know Jesus, begin to take steps to hear and obey the words of Jesus. And then over time, they're just encountered with the truth of Jesus. And they say, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. And God shows up in amazing places right where we're at. There's a few stories that are happening around Kansas City, like as we speak in various networks. There's a friend of mine um, named Casey, whose, whose brother has significant special needs. And uh, Casey has just never quite known, like he's got this heart for, for reaching people with special needs and never quite knew what to do with that. And, and one day God just opened up opportunity for him to, to come in and hang out with his brother and their friends. And they started Discovery Bible Study with all these uh, amazing people in this group home, special needs community. And every week they gather together, they discover Jesus and they talk about what it means to follow him. And I'm telling you, every time I tell the story, I start to cry because God is doing, like the, the gospel is being planted in that community. Maybe, maybe they would come to church if they, they could, but they, they can't. So how do we plant the gospel in that network? It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I got another friend who has a real heart for high school kids in the area. So he just started hanging out in a skate park. He used to skate a lot. And he met a kid who never been to church, but is really spiritually hungry. 
And uh, that kid knew a bunch of other kids, invited them together. Now they're regularly gathering. It's a bunch of unchurched skaters at a skate park, reading the word of God. Say, how can we follow Jesus together? There's a story after story after story that God is beginning to do this. And he's not doing it through people who uh, are professionals. He's doing it through ordinary people in ordinary places who have said, hey, I'm in. (laughs) Whatever that looks like, right? I'm in to join God in these places. And I'm telling you, when you start to live like that, God does some crazy stuff. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.